As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The election coming up on Sunday in Honduras has people nervous both inside and outside the country. Claims of fraud last time led to deadly protests. What looks to be a tight race this time could lead to similar allegations with similar results. And she fought the German occupation of Italy. She fought the fascist regime of Benito Mussolini. Even 70 years later, she hosted left-leaning artists and intellectuals. Our obituaries editor reflects on the extraordinary life of Rosanna Banti. First up, though. Shopkeepers in Turkey are burning symbolic money. They're trying to draw attention to the economic policies of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, who might as well be burning actual money. One of them said, we cannot sleep until morning. Unpaid rent is piling up. Turkey's economy is in crisis, or rather an ongoing crisis, has suddenly got much worse. Inflation is soaring, 20% officially, but probably more. The Turkish lira is sinking. At one point this week, it fell as much as 15% in a few hours. Basic economic wisdom would suggest that the central bank raise interest rates to crimp the money supply. But the president is working to some unconventional wisdom. In a speech on Monday, President Recep Tayyip Erdogan defended his central bank's interest rate cuts and suggested that he was deliberately pursuing a weaker currency to drive growth. Piotr Zalewski is The Economist's Turkey correspondent and is based in Istanbul. He promised to lift the, quote, scourge of interest rates from people's backs. He also said he, Turkey, was waging an economic war of independence and promised to stand firm. This was taken to mean that there would be further cuts in the interest rate and the response was swift and the response was brutal. Investors and Turks began selling the lira, which at some point on Tuesday was down by 15% against the dollar before recovering somewhat over the ensuing days. And we've spoken before about Mr. Erdogan's unusual economic ideas. Why has this insistence this time gone so wrong? His insistence on lower rates, rates below the rate of inflation, has been going wrong for quite some time. Inflation in Turkey is very high. The official rate is nearly 20%. Four out of five Turks, according to a survey, will tell you that uh, the real number, the actual number, 
is much higher. Um, now, normally what you would do to push down inflation is to limit the money supply by raising interest rates. Mr. Erdogan is putting pressure on the central bank to do the exact opposite, to lower interest rates and to keep lowering interest rates. Now, what that has done and what that will do is to pump more money, more lira into the economy and push inflation even higher. And that also lowers the value of the lira on international markets. To put this in perspective, the lira has lost nearly 40% of its value against the dollar since the start of the year. So what this does is that it makes Turkish exports more competitive. It makes them cheaper for outsiders, but it makes many imports very expensive and sometimes prohibitively expensive to Turks. And so even though this goes against the, the, the current of economic thought, the central bank is just simply doing his bidding? More or less, Mr. Erdogan has sacked three central bank governors in under three years. And at this point, the central bank seems to have no choice but to dance to his tune. And it has now slashed interest rates by a cumulative four percentage points since September to 15%, which is, again, five percentage points below the rate of inflation. Now, why is it that Mr. Erdogan thinks that this is the way to go when that is exactly the opposite of what anybody else would suspect? The charitable explanation for this is that Mr. Erdogan would like to keep the lira exchange rate competitive, to keep the lira weak, in order to help borrowers and exporters, provided that their production chains do not rely too much on foreign suppliers, and to some extent, the construction sector could benefit from negative real interest rates and a weak currency. The problem with this thinking is that economists will tell you that even at negative real interest rates, investors are going to hesitate to take out loans because the market situation, the economy, is simply too volatile. That is to say that this experiment then is, is already going pretty badly wrong for the Turkish people. Already, many blue-collar workers, students and pensioners are unable to afford things like meat, at least on a regular basis, or some basic household necessities. I was at an outdoor market a few days ago and spoke to some folks who, you know, complained about the economic situation. One was a retired nurse who said that at the end of the month, the only food she could afford to make for herself and for her two sons was a dish of pasta without so much as a drop of olive oil. She said on some days she had no choice but to go to bed hungry. It's also affecting middle-class Turks for whom holidays abroad and imported goods have now become entirely out of reach. Young professionals are thinking of leaving. 3,000 doctors have left Turkey, have emigrated since the start of the year. 8,000 more young doctors are reportedly thinking of joining them. One of Mr. Erdogan's successes during his first decade in power was to have presided over the rise of a vast Turkish middle class. 
as millions of Turks work their way out of poverty. Because of the currency crisis that Mr. Erdogan has helped provoke, that middle class is now quickly disappearing. And what about Mr. Erdogan's resolve here? Is is there a chance he will see how badly wrong this is going and, and change his mind, or is he going to stick with it? Turkey has been here before, and Mr. Erdogan has been here before. This is a currency crisis that is ongoing, and on a number of occasions, Mr. Erdogan, when confronted with the prospect of a currency collapse, pulled back and gave in, which is to say that he allowed the central bank to do what was necessary and to impose dramatic interest rate hikes. The feeling right now is that Mr. Erdogan is far more reluctant to give in and that he is ready to pursue this to the end. The risk is not only to the economy, but to Mr. Erdogan's political standing. Already his support is at a record low. And with elections scheduled for 2023, his prospects don't look great. And in fact, polls indicate that in a presidential contest, he would lose to any of the three opposition candidates that now seem to be considering a presidential run. There have been some protests in Turkey against the government's monetary policy. There is real fear that these will swell, especially during the winter. But bear in mind that Turkey's democratic record is quite woeful and that these protests very likely to be met with force. So the fear is that the social unrest will continue paired with economic misery unless Mr. Erdogan pulls back. And this time around, it seems that he's more reluctant to do so than ever before. Piotr, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Navigate an ever-changing landscape with global insights and market intelligence from the Economist Intelligence Unit. Our award-winning analysis helps clients to seize opportunities and manage risk effectively. EIU examines the economic and political landscape of nearly 200 countries with accurate and impartial analysis and forecasts. Discover challenges faced by each economy, examining impacts on supply chains, overseas operations, commodity prices and market dynamics. To help your organization better understand the world and prosper within it, visit EIU.com. Earlier this week, members of the Honduran army set out in armored trucks to deliver election ballots across the country. When Hondurans head to the polls on Sunday, it'll be a sharp test of the country's democracy. In the last presidential election, suspicions of foul play led to mass protests. Things have been messy since a coup in 2009. The political scene has since been growing more polarized, and now trust is as low as the tensions are high. So this is a significant election for Honduras. There will be a new president. The current president, Juan Orlando Hernandez, has been in power for two terms, but he's not standing again. Sarah Burke covers Central America for The Economist. After the last election, there were protests at the outcome, with people alleging that there had been fraud and, in fact, questions by observers as well. So there's a sense of nervousness about Sunday's vote, of whether it's going to be conducted fairly, whether the results are going to be trustworthy, and whether there are going to be protests again, like last time. 
And aside from those concerns, what's the the backdrop of the election? So the backdrop of the election is that President Juan Orlando Hernandez is not standing. So it's going to be a contest between the party he's from, the candidate from that party, the National Party, and the opposition candidate. The opposition has kind of got together and put forward one candidate who's actually the wife of a former president uh, and quite sort of left wing. And then there are other smaller candidates. So it's really going to be a a case of can democracy function? Can there be a, a, a change in power? Will people trust it? And then what does this mean, depending on who wins, for the future of the country? There's a number of things going on. Obviously, COVID, like everywhere, there's been some hurricanes that have caused a lot of distress and economic problems. And then the other thing is there's just this sort of sense of where Honduras is going in terms of its relationship with drug traffickers, which obviously matters for its relationship with the US. And why is that question of of drug traffickers so important? Across Central America, there's an infiltration of drug traffickers with politics to some degree. But in Honduras, it's really been at the very top levels or allegedly at the very top levels. So the president's brother is in prison in the US, convicted for drug trafficking. And the president himself was named in several of the trials. He denies having anything to do with this. But obviously there are lots of suspicion that he too has been aiding and abetting drug trafficking from the country. And so whoever wins next, you know, it will be a case of, well, what's their relationship with drug traffickers? What does that mean for it is a route to the US? And so President Hernandez is stepping down. Who is his party's candidate to replace him? The candidate for that party is Nasri Asfura, the popular mayor of the capital city. You know, he's done lots of good things for the city, or people perceive him as doing, having done lots of good things, new infrastructure, etc. He says he's going to do a sort of more of the same jobs and opportunities so people have a decent quality of living uh, and also supporting farmers. But he's been involved or implicated in an embezzlement scandal. Again, he denies having done anything wrong. So there's a cloud over his head, albeit not one to do with drug trafficking. And who's the main rival here? Who's the opposition candidate? So the main rival is Yamara Castro. And she's a former first lady and a prior presidential candidate. So her husband is Manuel Zelaya, known as Mel, who was ousted in the coup in 2009. And she led the protest movement against this coup. So she's seen as a, a leftist candidate, but people think that really she might be a front for her husband. And when he was in power, he was very allied with Cuba and Venezuela. And there were lots of fears that he was going to try and implement a sort of similarly socialist regime in Honduras. So her sort of message has been a lot about things being wrong in Honduras. There's too much corruption, drug trafficking. She wants to change things. So a lot of people, that is an appealing message and, and, you know, rightly so. But there's also fears around her winning. So there are only two candidates. You know, there are other candidates. One is quite colourful, Yanni Rosenthal, who just got out of jail in the US after three years for convictions for money laundering. And he talks about not wanting a path of corruption. A more sort of centrist path, which is an interesting message coming from someone who's been in jail. So given those those choices, uh, where do you see things headed? How close is this race going to be, do you think? So currently, it looks like Xiomara Castro will win, but polling is not super good in Honduras, so it's a little bit unclear. And that makes things complicated, because if the National Party candidate wins again, then there are likely to be allegations of, of fraud and therefore potentially protests again, like the last election. 
And so the way that ultimately plays out will be, as you say, a, a test of, of Honduras's democracy, its future even. Yeah, I mean, it has domestic and international ramifications. You know, first of all is where is democracy going in Honduras? There's a democratic backsliding, not just there, but in other countries of Central America. And who wins and how they govern will impact that. Obviously, the relationship with narco-traffickers, drug trafficking, again, is a huge problem, not just in Honduras, but across Central America. And that affects the relationship with the US as well. And then obviously migration. Central America, Honduras in particular, sends out a lot of migrants uh, because of the domestic situation there. And so what happens in the election and how the country is ruled afterwards will impact that too. So, you know, for a very small country, this is an important election for what's going to happen in the future. Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Take a minute this weekend to have your say about the intelligence, what you like, what you don't, what you want more of. Find our survey at economist.com slash intelligence survey. Just click the link that's in the notes for today's show. Thanks. Una mattina, mi son svegliata, bella ciao. If you wanted to find a secret agent in the Italy that was occupied by the Nazis in the 1940s, you probably wouldn't have chosen Rosanna Banti. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. She tended to do her missions wearing a bright red coat, a coat of Casentino cloth which she was immensely attached to. It was in fact her only coat. And she would wear it as she cycled through the streets and distributed round northern Rome copies of L'Unità, the communist newspaper, which had been suppressed. But then Rossana Banti was only 17 and her idea of helping the Italian war effort was just to get on her bike and enjoy herself and make a splash of colour and not particularly to be secret about it. She adored the job she was doing. She had got very interested in communism and socialism in her last two years at school and drew posters for the cause. She didn't always understand what her friends were debating about. She was not really a philosopher, but she simply wanted to join the side of justice and freedom as she saw it. She carried out various missions And one in particular was dangerous, where she had to go on a bus with a suitcase full of nitroglycerin explosives. She and a friend would act like an engaged couple on the bus, so they'd be hugging and kissing and not arousing any suspicion. On the other hand, the road was bumpy, and with every jolt of the bus, she was terrified that the nitroglycerin would explode. And at one point, the bump was so extreme that Her companion shouted, Rossa, mind the eggs. Of course, there were not eggs in the suitcase at all, but they both burst out laughing. As she went about these various missions, it seemed she often had the persona or the role of a rather giggly, silly young girl. And in a sense, she was. She was acting it up too. 
But this was also the role that fascism had given to women. There'd been a long period of fascist rule in which women were meant to stay at the sidelines, never think about war or violence, never involve themselves in anything interesting, but simply be girlfriends, wives, mothers. And she went against that. She felt that she should be able to do exactly what the men were doing. And in June of 1944, she was given the chance to work with SOE, the British Special Operations Executive, which was clandestine work carried out from Bari in the south of Italy. Once she got to Bari, she was enlisted in a nursing yeomanry, it was called. But in fact, she was doing administrative work to send agents on missions they were parachuted into the north of Italy, which was still occupied by the Germans and where fighting was fierce. So her role was to instruct these agents, make sure they had everything they needed. But also, despite her longing to be on the tough side of the war, it was to comfort them and to show them that a woman's help could make their missions a bit more tolerable. So she would laugh with them and she would hug them if they cried. She would check their equipment for them and reassure them that everything was fine. And then, just like any fussing mother, she might ask them whether they'd had a pee or not. She loved to remember how she had been mother, girlfriend, sister, all these things all rolled into one. But then she forgot about her war service or it didn't seem necessary to remember it once Italy was free. That was the main thing. And then to her enormous surprise, when she was nearly 90, she found that some medals had turned up in Britain, which had been awarded to someone in the Italian resistance, but had never been delivered. And she discovered through a friend in the British Army that these medals were for her. She couldn't believe this had happened. It had all been so long ago that she had done this service. And she felt the award should really have gone to the young girl that she was and not to the 90-year-old that she now was. She kept saying how ancient she was and she was just an old girl. And for God's sake, what were they thinking of giving the medal to someone so old? And she had started off the whole thing by going out in her red coat, cycling round the streets, doing her small, almost childish bit for the partisans. And what had she done, she was sometimes asked, with the famous red coat? She'd had to take it off for a while, certainly, and hide it away because she was too conspicuous. She'd got known to the Gestapo for wearing it. She admitted that she'd had to burn it. But in a sense, she'd never taken it off. Anne Rowe on Rosanna Banti, who's died aged 92. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. The show's editors this week are Marguerite Howell and Chris Impey. Our senior producers are Stevie Hertz, Duncan Barber, Sam Colbert, and Sam Westron. Our producers are William Warren and Jason Hoskin, and our sound engineer is Will Rowe. We'll all see you back here on Monday. 
You've seen the headlines. Bonds are making a comeback. But if you've ever tried to invest in bonds, you know what a clunky, complicated, broken experience it can be. That's why at Public, we took fixed income and fixed it. Now you can find, evaluate, and buy thousands of bonds with an investing experience designed in this century. Add fixed income to your portfolio with corporate, treasury, and municipal bonds. Go to public.com forward slash The Economist to get started. Full disclosures can be found at public.com forward slash bonds.